UK Motor Talk. Hello again to another riveting podcast and we are here joining you yet again in lockdown as you probably know from our various different locations and all the joy that that brings. I'm Mike and this is the UK Motor Talk podcast and with me today I have... I'm Graham and uh, nice to be back with you. Hi and I'm David, I'm waiting my turn, age before beauty. And unfortunately Jim is, you know, doing what he needs to do, investigating problems with his boot uh, presently or possibly cheating us with another podcast, who knows? But hopefully he'll be along in a bit. So what have we seen since the last time we spoke to you? There's a car that caught my eye the other day, Renault Clio V6, which I d- did drive one of once, and uh, it was a very reasonably priced motor car, given the fact that uh, they're so unusual and so rare. And uh, I certainly wouldn't mind owning one. They're a bit more affordable than the old uh, Turbo 2s, aren't they, though? So although quickly assimilating and turning into modern classics in their own right the v6 clios aren't they they're a bit of a handful as i seem to recall from the rotes of the time did you find that when you drove yours graham uh yeah i certainly did they were yeah i mean if you put a, a massively powerful v6 crosswise in a in a tiny little car like that yes you're going to have some problems but the you're quite right the turbo 2 was a complete and utter animal uh <laughs> and i could derive no pleasure from driving one of those <laughs> Well, you see, I don't know, because I, I know someone that's got a, a 5 Maxi, you know, the, the proper full wide-body thing, and he, let's just say there's he's only allowed to start it at certain times of the day because of the noise and the neighbours, but it, it is incredible. Uh, that That is one of these visceral experiences that's like nothing else. The V6 Clio, though, is an interesting one because I like the noise and I like the concept, and, and yes, it's a bit mad, and I suspect I'm going to get shot down here for this one. But I genuinely think the 182 was a better car to drive. So with the the engine in the front, in the traditional place, and considering how much the difference in cost now, you can pick up a, a reasonable uh, 182 for anywhere between two grand and five grand for a really nice one, and a bit less if you want to go for a, a project, something a bit tatty around the edges, which is probably best off being a track car. And great track cars they make. They, I think they were a really good car. And I've said this before, but although I'm not a massive fan of... of the cars Renault makes in general, when it comes down to their Renault Sport products and things like the 182, 172 before it, genuinely brilliant cars to drive, handle brilliantly, sound pretty good. The 197 that came after, for me, around town, it was just, it just didn't feel great. It required to, it required you to wring its neck, to be honest, to get the best out of it. Otherwise, it was just a bit lumpy. They've made some cracking cars and something that really excited me this week was the new five. Did you guys see this? Yes, the electric I did. one. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a, a properly, in my mind, a properly good-looking prototype. I know we have to take these things with a pinch of salt. They always have a bit too big a wheel and a bit too small an arch gap to be what they're going to be in real life. But if it looks anything like that, that's going to be epic, I think. Such a cool-looking thing. And we're going to chuck some pictures over on, on Facebook and Instagram, and you'll be able to see on the website. So... Check us out at UK Motor Talk on any of those things or UK Motor Talk UK, and let us know what you think. But I think that is a great looking car and the fact that it's electric means that it's, I would say future proof, but medium term future proof at least. Yeah, you imagine that with a bit of power. 
That's going to be cracking. Well, if it's anything like the original Renault 5, the Renault 5 GT Turbo, which was just one of the most fun cars I've ever driven. I mean, you're exactly right, mm. both of you, saying they are some of the most fun handling little cars. When Renault go to work on a hot hatchback, they really do it properly. They might be a bit flaky yep. and the build quality might be a bit... But, my word, they handle. The Renault 5 GT Turbo that my mate had when I had one of my many Uno Turbos, we used to swap occasionally just to see what the other one was like. And I, it pained me at the time, and it pains me even now to say it outhandled the Uno quite easily. Even though the Uno was great fun, you know, you could fling it around. The Renault 5 was just otherworldly. It was like sitting in a little go-kart with a roof and latterly after that he got himself a Clio Williams which was just as good if not better and the build quality was marginally better and you felt like you might survive if you hit anything in it as well but I mean again two of the most iconic hot hatches they're a generation before the ones you're talking about obviously but I'm old Mm. so I remember them I really like the Clio Williams as well Uh, Mm. superb car to drive not sure that I really liked the gold wheels, but there we are. A bit, uh, <laughs> no, I think they made it. Effect, I think it had it? to have the gold wheels. But yeah, going back to the the, the GT turbos, I'm sure memory serves 1.4 with a, a blow through carb on the top. My my lasting memory uh, of, of GT turbos, I was going through um, Southwick Hill Tunnel, and I was I can't remember where I was going. It was one evening. I was in an XR3i that I had at the time, and I was driving on poodling along, and all of a sudden I heard this, whoosh, whoosh, and all of a sudden straight past me and then just an almighty boof, and then bits of the engine came flying out through the back of the exhaust and that was it, <laughs> it obviously had the boost turned right up and it just it absolutely shat itself all over the road he disappeared off <laughs> onto the, it's like a little lay-by bit just up the side and that was it obviously i i'm guessing that that happened quite a lot they were a bit fragile i yes. seem to remember graham can probably back me up on this but i seem to remember there was a lot of problem with heat soap because of the carburetor and a lot of them had turbo timers as well where you know you'd walk away and leave yes. the car running for 10 minutes to keep the um keep the oil cool or cooling down so that it would not bake itself on the turbo valve yeah. on the turbo guides and um, fry itself yeah, they were they were known those. for being a bit what flimsy to turbo timers they did they did used to cook themselves and i had uh, two one after the other rover 3500s and they they suffered from a similar problem which was they had massive su's on them but the heat mm. soaked from the engine used to if you, if you left them for only a few minutes that would basically boil the uh, su's so there'd be no fuel in the issues in the, in the in the bowls, and they were a pig to restart after that had happened. Very common problem with those. Mm. I think I think that's the reason the Met Police had the uh, the fuel injected ones very quickly. They soon realised that they were having the same problems. If you need to get back in your car and get off after a miscreant, you don't want to do it when the thing's not going to want to start. <laughs> there was something about those thirty five hundred V eights though. They were awesome. uh, they were really awesome motor cars, yeah. Awesome cars. The thing that amazes me though is when you think back to these cars that were, you know, late eighties, early nineties, and everything else. You think the XR three I I couldn't in, I bought it when I was twenty and couldn't insure it because it was still considered to be a high performance car, hundred and five horsepower, <laughs> one hundred and five ridiculous. The Orions were quicker, in fact, because they didn't weigh so much. They're they're a little bit quicker than than an XR3i. So that that goes to show you something, doesn't it? And you think an RS Turbo was 130 horsepower, and people went mad for the the Cosworth because they were over 200 horsepower, 205 horsepower. And you think 100 horsepower per litre, and and these days, you've got 1.5, 1 litre engines that are 140, 150 
200, 200 and a bit brake horsepower. And then you start going into yeah, the Mercedes, the hyper hatches, the A35s, A45 AMGs, they're 400 brake horsepower out of a two litre. It's a different world, isn't it? These, these hyper hatches by comparison. I got pulled up in the Rover one, one night by the old Bill on the A303, I think it was. And uh, I wasn't going particularly quickly. I was a little over initially. Uh, the query was, it's not the colour as described uh, in the DVLA. Um, okay, well, this is what it says on the logbook. I've got all the paperwork in the car. It then transpired, well, I've been thinking of buying one of these. Do you think I could have a close look at it before <laughs> I just... <laughs> Cheeky git. But anyway, he did. No, they were great fun, the Rovers. Um, they were, because I, I grew up on the the very north edge of surrey where we were technically under the under the iron fist of the met police so we used to see a lot of the rover three fives and the and the slightly less powerful two sixes but yeah. um the three fives used to make the most fantastic noise when they used to gun them away from the lights and um the police garage little in, interesting interesting little snippet the police garage which basically worked the a3 was based up at tolworth and it was actually in the old cooper garages that was the police garage for um for that part of sort of south london kingston all around there so it was quite good so it's a bit of history up there and uh so it was quite good as well in so much as you got to see what the unmarked cars were that they were using yeah and um, a lot of the interesting things used to get circulated that they got given on loan one of which was in the early 90s was a 968 club sport which had a bright orange stripe down the side and the word police and a magnet mount blue light they used to whack <laughs> on the roof that's and, cool um, that was that was quite a lot of ice buy points if you saw that one a club sport. Mm. I, I road tested one of those for the Christmas issue of a newspaper, uh, and, and we did our Christmas shopping in a nine six eight club sport, which was bizarre to say the least. But a great car. Yeah, it's a really really enjoyable car. Stripped Practical. out, but not stripped. Yeah, yeah, yes. It, it wasn't stripped out so far that you couldn't use it on the road. It was still a usable vehicle. They fetch some serious money now. They're highly desirable. But could you fit a Christmas tree in it? Uh, I'd never tried a Christmas tree. We did uh, in a, what's it, a Daihatsu Kopen, I think it was. We went out and collected small Christmas trees in, in one of those. And if you've not seen a Daihatsu Kopen, it's bloody tiny. <laughs> whatever I was testing had to do whatever we were doing that week or that weekend. There's something about driving a, a police car, though. I just love the T5 Volvos, for example. I mean, most of the stuff when I was a kid, it was the, the, um, the Omegas. You used to see loads of those rolling around. I suppose just after the sort of Sierra Sapphire Cosworth Interceptor, that kind of car. Uh, so it's some really cool stuff. These days, as I say, yeah, your, your average car probably has as much power as most of these cars. And certainly the, the racy cars that I'd otherwise be chasing are, are you know, twice as powerful. It's quite an interesting and apposite point uh, if you see any number of the the many police interceptors police camera action police stop whatever they're called now there's so many that they're interchangeable on many channels mostly channel five or its derivatives but if you go back over the early episodes of i think it's police interceptors from the sort of mid mid 
2000s they're all driving around making a big point of driving scoobies and evos now they're going around (laughs) in bmw 330 diesels that will outrun those and will do three times as many miles to the gallon for longer without detonating the the center differential after about twenty thousand miles and i I think that's an indication of how far things have moved on that new generation of uh, the police interceptors are, are, are so indestructible that they're a lot more comfortable about doing squeezing uh, motions, if you like, to uh, catch the bad guys that they've been chasing when they form up in boxes on the motorway and so on. They, the, the new, those generation of cars uh, are a lot more durable and they'll take a lot more impact than what a Scooby-Doo. I wouldn't want to hit anything in a Scooby-Doo. This week, the focus, my older... Uh ratty banger which we use for for my wife to drive up to work because people seem to drive into the cars and drive off there because that's the done thing apparently thanks for that by the way if you're the idiot that hit the uh, audi and then drove off um and as a result of that you never really know it's a few hundred quid's worth of focus is it going to pass the mot if it doesn't is it worth fixing so you start looking around thinking let's see what else i can buy for the money and the temptation is to go and buy yourself a luxo barge isn't it something like a an old e-class or whatever it might be an old bmw i've been looked at a couple of seven series which would be ruinously expensive to run but you know much fun very comfortable doing so one of the my go-to cars as we we all know is is volvo and one of the cars that popped up on my sub thousand pound uh, search via ebay and facebook marketplace and all the other places you buy your cars was a x ambulance t5 um, but it hadn't been stripped. It was still completely set up as was. The, I thought, that's that's quite a cool car. Tower. You know, again, you're going to have to take all the bits and pieces off it, I know. But just there's something about X service vehicles that's somehow really attractive. And a T5 Volvo, yeah, I think that kind of does it for me, to be honest. Am I weird? Well, yes, but... No, not at all. I, I, I've known car dealers that like collecting military vehicles, particularly there was one... Mazda dealer that I used to have dealings with who had a couple of uh, a tank and a couple of army scout cars in his compound not for any reason he wasn't intending to sell them he just couldn't resist collecting them so obviously that Mazda dealership was make, making enough money for for him to indulge in his toys is it just did you just do it for the puns it's like built like a tank <laughs> Or <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can't quite afford one of those get yourself in one of these the Volvo T5 mm. bulletproof Quite famously, the drummer from New Order, the the famous beat combo from Manchester, Stephen Morris is famous for living on a farm up the, up in Cheshire in the wilds, and he's got a couple of um, tracked vehicles that he quite often takes out on his land. He's got an Abbott self-propelled gun, and I believe he might have a scout car or something. But he's um he's got a couple of bits and pieces, and the, there's apparently there's a um a bridleway or a public footpath over the hills at the back of the place and quite regularly people will be wandering past cagoules and all sorts of things and they'll see this lunatic hurling this sort of 20-ton behemoth around <laughs> over, the, over the hills scaring the sheep, which sounds like a nice way to spend your money. I, I think I would if I was in his position. I think I'd indulge. Would be tempted in... Hello, James. Oh, and here he, he is, us. as promised, here is Jim. Good evening, everyone. I'm so sorry I'm late. I hope you're all well. I've got to listen to this uh, podcast afterwards to find out what was said at the beginning, haven't I? Well, the things that were said about you, definitely. Well, yes, pretty much that, yes. We were just talking about New Order 
and was it Simon Morris did you say? Steve Morris the drummer. Steve Morris Steve Morris the drummer at Driving Track Vehicles and I was just about to say there's someone round the corner from me and I say round the corner that's a lie it's about three quarters of a mile away and he lives in a relatively notorious part of uh, town was one notorious road and he has an armored land rover and, I, and by that i don't mean he's got the the sheets of metal in the doors i mean he's got slits that you can see through uh, it's a full-on armored car and that's parked out on the road i think that probably says something about the road he lives on last seen plying the streets of belfast that sort of thing exactly that sort of thing yes in, in this day and age you can't be too careful can you and that said i can't imagine for a second that anyone opens the door into the side of his car <laughs> you just imagine can't you in your micro, wang the door open inside of it, just bends it in half. If they did, they probably wouldn't get a chance to do it again, put it that way. Now, if you follow us on Facebook, you would have seen that we are going to be talking this evening a bit about the motor industry. Now, Jim and I are flooded with question from people, not questions, but questions, certainly, from people asking us about what it's like to work in the motor industry. And this is something that we've done for pretty much all of our adult working lives. Um, So we've invited you to ask some questions of us. So some of my favourites thus far. Do you have a lunch break? No. Do you just prat around in cars all day? Sometimes yes. Well, when you say prat around in cars all day, I think the last time we spent pratting around in cars, or the last time we spent all day in cars was a trip to Manchester and back, wasn't it? And then I think within about three minutes of getting on the motorway to head home, we uh, we called each other and said, are you bored yet? Yes. You still bored? Yes. And that, that conversation went on for about an hour and a half, didn't it? So it's not all it's not all glitz and glamour. So we do get to, I say, prat around in cars. That's a lot of the time, no. Uh, and do we earn a fortune is the other question people ask us. Yes, of course we do. Uh, that's how we can afford to bring you such high quality podcasts on such a regular basis. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, the motor industry is is an interesting one in, in, in my mind, because I think probably we've already seen the glory days. And that was probably in the 80s and 90s when it was basically, well, it was Wall Street, wasn't it? And now we're in a time we've post-austerity uh, and we've moved into other problems but it also can be enjoyable from time to time that's usually on a thursday every third month for no apparent reason just seems to be that day yeah it's, it's a funny old time to be in the trade i mean yeah we do say to each other that we uh, we definitely join the trade at the wrong time when you look at the uh, the extravagance and the opulence of um you know previous dealer trips and car launches abroad in uh, in sunnier climates or you know the 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 new generation focus the mark ii focus was launched at the nurburgring i think wasn't it three three days after i left my dealership to go back to uni to finish off my degree i started there on work placement and it was a yeah the, that was a bit irritating i think the uh the first or well, the nearest to glitz and glamour of a car launch i got was the uh the fiesta and uh and a reminder of the ka in Leeds. so uh yeah not quite barcelona <laughs> not quite italy but it's um yeah, it's, I mean, overall, it's um, as you say, it's, it it has its moments. It's fun, but it's I, I don't know. I kind of fell into it because I like cars or I love cars, and and it was something to do that involved cars. Really, I thought I'll I'll go and work at a car shop. So I wrote to all the car shops and said, "Can I have a job?" And that's that's how I kind of fell into it. But I think lots of people say once you've fallen into the motor trade, it's it's very difficult to get out. I'm not sure it's difficult to get out. It's just a case of oh, well, I'm here, this is what I do, and that's it, really. We uh, we seem stuck in it. Michael touched on there the, the, the 80s and the 90s, and the industry got a really, really bad image through the 80s and the 90s, and you, you 
mentions the sort of the Wall Street excesses. Uh, and certainly the industry was in some areas like that and that at that time. These days it's it's a whole different ball game. I certainly I get the sense that it's it's very much cleaner and the people that work in it are generally much more aware that they've got to play a long game if they want to succeed in business long term. Yes, I mean we're all we're more chicken strippers and Coca Cola than the other kind of strippers and Coke. I think probably uh, <laughs> these days. But yeah, I mean it's it is a, a difficult industry. Not in terms of you know it's it's really hard and you should feel sorry for us. But like any industry, I think at the moment uh, times change and, and and things move on. And I'm sure we'll we'll come to that in just a bit. But the whole face of of retailing, yeah, I mean it it has changed massively. You think three years ago we had big department stores that's not really going to be a, a thing much longer and certainly a certain amount of that has been as a result of of the problems we've had with with covid there's been a shift so i'm led to understand in about eight months worth of trading and there's been a development of about eight years worth of um online sales and uh, online retailing so that there's been a big shift in, in in that environment in that space but i think the world's just a different place altogether we're a lot more environmentally conscious i think people are more conscious of of what they consume and how they consume it and to that extent cars as we know them internal combustion engine have been villainized um a bit certainly we've had the demonization of diesel something which back in the mid noughties was being heralded as as the way to go you know you were buying cars with 30 pound road tax because they're so much cleaner than petrols and they are cleaner in some ways and not in others and this is the same for for many different kinds of transport <laughs> there are lots of ways of getting about which perhaps aren't aren't so clean you think about uh when you fly somewhere for example people are i think a bit more conscious of this now and i'm not saying that people were ignorant of it before because obviously people knew it's much like smoking people have known for a long time smoking is not not good for you but to a certain extent certain things have, have become taboo now and i had an interesting conversation with one of my well, actually a couple of the kids that's next door to me and we were talking about cars and said what would you have you know if you you had an unlimited budget what would you buy and they said tesla and i think that's a bit indicative of how kids are taught now I'm not saying this is a bad thing but i think there is a lot more conscious thinking about the impact we have on our planet and i think that's also now factored into what we do on a daily basis well i think you're right about the uh the smoking thing. Me and the wife started watching. We we got about halfway through it. Um, Ricky Gervais was uh, was right in his speech. We uh, we got halfway through. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood is that the one with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in it? And uh, just yes. as you might be watching a film and you think, oh, let's have a, a drinking challenge. You know, every time somebody drinks, you have to drink as well. We thought if if you did a smoking challenge once upon a time in Hollywood, every time they smoke, you smoke. I, I think you go through about 300 fags watching the film, but it's it's always very odd when you watch a modern film where there's lots of people smoking in it. You you find it odd, mm. and then you think, you're smoking inside, you're smoking in a car, you're smoking near a baby, and it's, yeah, it's the, the, uh, as information and knowledge progresses, um, yeah, you realise what you're doing is either bad for you or bad for the environment, so you have to, to change your approach. But it's... Um, uh, no, going back to the motor trade, it's it's an odd one. It's it's far more, I think, of uh, as Graham said, a, a a keeping clean, squeaky clean, looking after people, long game image. But it's it's the number of different people or the number of different groups you have to try and keep happy, which is the uh, the odd thing. You've got customers who want, deserve, demand, 
expect, feel entitled to a certain level of service. You've got the manufacturers that want you to do X, Y and Z and at the same time do A, B and C and jump through these hoops and do this, do that, do the other, submit endless reports and plans and strategies for what you're going to do with this, that, the other. And and COVID's pushed obviously lots of things online so there's more uh, more WebExes and Zoom meetings and bits and pieces like that. You know, it, it even got to the stage uh, the other day where I had two meetings from our motor company scheduled at the same time. One had a sales slant, but it said very important for the dealer principal, and the other one was uh, on the service side, very important for the dealer principal. And I thought, how how can you run a company where you're saying we've got these two critical important meetings that the dealer principal must attend, let's schedule them for the same day at the same time? When the manufacturer pushes you to the stage where you have to be in two meetings at the same time, you have to be in two different places at the same time, I think that's probably a sign it's it's all getting a little bit crazy whilst making sure the uh, you know your FCA compliant and your finance selling is fair and uh, and everything else it's um yeah and uh, of course last but not least looking after the staff that work in the dealership as well because you you I often find myself so busy running around trying to uh, make sure that all the boxes are ticked it's um it's not always easy to find the time to make sure the people that are ticking the boxes and jumping through the hoops for you are, are happy. And uh, and half the time you get to the end of the day and you actually think, oh, have I sold anything? Have I done anything? Have I d- actually done anything that's made any money today to keep us in business, to look after the shareholders, which is another group of people you have to look after? It's uh, it, g- it gets very tricky. It's, I think our, our dealership's come a long way from uh, the chap himself who set it up in the first place because he liked cars and it was his dealership and he did what he liked and he was the boss, he was the owner and that was it. I think there were certainly simpler times. Yeah, it's certainly not like that anymore. It is with uh, COVID among us, uh, it's changed an awful lot of things and a lot of people now seem to be moving towards buying online. Most dealerships seem to have found the need to go along with that I find it very strange that people could buy a car, whether it's a new car or, or a second-hand car, without actually seeing it till it arrives outside their house on the back of a truck. It's, it's, we live in strange times. I, I mean, how do you see that, uh, Jim, uh, as f- from a dealer point of view, that the world seems to be changing so fast? Uh, well, you're right. I mean, the the shift to online has been an odd one. I think some or a great deal of the pressure of that has come from um, you know dealerships simply being businesses and realizing that they have a hell of a lot of costs that uh, that they need to cover plenty of dealerships are on expensive plots of land in uh, in very expensive glass boxes that have been built over the last couple of couple of years you know manufacturers demand ever more pristine and, uh, and impressive facilities so the group dealer groups bigger dealer groups even more so but lots of dealerships find themselves investing ridiculous sums of money building these these boxes to show off the manufacturer products and um, when they look at the the cost of that it's um, they just have to carry on selling cars one way or another the you know the motor industry in the United Kingdom is is a volume game it's a numbers game doesn't re- you know and unless you're um ferrari or bugatti or lamborghini it's and and even ferrari and, and lamborghini and with uh, with their suvs have s- suddenly started leaning towards having to chase numbers you know unless unless you're selling something with a ridiculous profit margin or you simply pick a price and charge it and people pay it 
um, you, you need to shift huge quantities of metal and something as small and insignificant as a worldwide pandemic that's that's killing hundreds of thousands of tens of millions of people is um you know that that can't stand in the way of hitting some targets for uh, for a lot of businesses so the need to to move online i mean that, to be fair you can buy anything online these days you can you can order anything online and and it'll turn up at your door so you know in theory on the face of it why not cars i think we're all probably slightly unusual between us all in that we are we're car geeks we love cars you know enthusiastic about cars themselves and and what they offer and what they bring to us so you know yeah i i wouldn't dream of buying a used car online without going to have a look at it and sitting in it and smelling it um as uh odors in used cars can certainly be an issue um new cars uh, i i think probably do lend themselves more to being sold online in truth because they're all the same they all come out to the factory and and you know if you pick a i don't know a, a desert island blue fiesta titanium one liter and whether you order that from a dealership in leeds or scotland or brighton or littlehampton or lands end or john o'groats it it will be identical um no matter what dealership you go in uh, they all roll off the production line to the same standard. So if you've driven one brand new Fiesta, then you know exactly how it's going to drive. Like so, new cars. I think as as long as you've driven one, which let's face it, you can you can do with Enterprise or uh, or anyone like that. If you want to spend a week in a car to see what it's really like, then yeah, you you can buy a new car online. I think that's that's perfectly acceptable. Used, I I I don't get you. You need to see them and and test drive them. Um, but I mean, we're, we're still flooded with um, inquiries about people wanting to test drive things, but it's a little bit odd. Stay at home. Do not make non-essential journeys. And test driving a car is, is not an essential journey. So not not everybody quite gets it. But on the other hand, if uh, if your car's blown up, been nicked or written off or whatever, then you need a car. A car is essential these days. So I think test driving a car before you uh, before you buy it is essential. So it's a it's a fine line there. But um, no, the 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 online trend is uh, is only going to continue. And I think there's plenty of people who don't like the old fashioned view of the car purchasing experience. You know, you mentioned the eighties and nineties as being a good time for the motor industry, but maybe not the best for uh, for consumers in the motor industry. So you know, people don't like that. You know dodgy car salesman in sheepskin coats kind of thing always trying this trick that trick the other trick buying it online simply removes all of that because there's the cars there there's the price you click a button you buy it now that's it you get on with it i think the other thing is you know these days car dealerships because of the type of industry that it is it offers finance everything else it is so heavily regulated and because of this reputation that maybe was born of the 80s 90s or before whenever it was um, it's an industry that's been increasingly under scrutiny. So there isn't space to do this. In terms of purchasing online now, most car buying journeys these days begin online. So people research uh, and they research uh, reviews via YouTube from listening to expert advice from people like us. <laughs> um, so <laughs> most car buying journeys these days start online. And it's not that there's a few people doing this. This is pretty much everyone and by pretty much everyone we're talking near enough 90 percent these days and, and that will be youtube reviews people listening to podcasts reading road tests that have been in magazines or online or what have you so yes there's a lot of people that start there and it makes sense that more people will continue their journey that way and the motor industry i think in general has been pretty slow to adapt to this 
used cars are one particular issue because they vary massively. For some people, that doesn't really matter. It's just a car. For other people like us, then yes, we, we definitely want to be able to, to drive them, experience them and taste and smell them or whatever it is that people do to them because people do some weird things with cars. But nevertheless, entire companies have been born of being able to buy used cars in this way. So companies like Kazoo and Cinch, which have emerged relatively recently. And when it comes to buying a new car, because it is a, a relatively homogenous product, yeah, why not? I'd always said I would never buy a car without driving it first. When I bought my RS Focus, I basically ordered that based on the reviews that I'd read. There wasn't a vehicle to be able to test drive, so I ordered the car and then went from there. As it happened, I managed to drive one before I took delivery of mine, but it was a good possibility I wouldn't have been able to do that. So to buy a buy a car on, on sort of blind faith is is unusual, I think. And it's the way that things are going. I think that probably speaks more to the, the car, doesn't it? Because if you were... Um talking about the Focus RS, well, it's a Ford, it's a Focus, it's an RS. You know how that's going to drive before you've driven it. You know that the chassis dynamics are going to be wonderful. You know that it's an RS, so it's going to be exciting. Uh, you know it's going to give you that, that thrill and that fun factor. So you know it's going to be a pretty special motor car when you order it. If it was something like a Dongfeng Fakang, then you have no idea what that drives like because you know is is it a Citroen that it's based on? But what have they done to it to uh, to turn it into a Dongfeng? You you have no idea, so you probably wouldn't buy it. So I think the a brand's heritage and history has uh, has more of a factor in that. You know, if uh, if you were thinking about uh, the new BMW M3, so I mean, okay, if you saw it, you obviously wouldn't order one, um, but you know, gouge my eyes out. What it's, <laughs> you uh, you know pretty much what it's going to drive like. So really, actually, all you need to see is what it looks like to decide whether you want to buy one or not. Um, you know that the uh, the chassis and the underpinnings are going to be uh, going to be fantastic. But also with with the move to um, uh, much bigger car group companies, you know that a Volkswagen Golf is a Seat Leon. You know that it is an Audi A3. You know that it is a is there a Skoda equivalent the hatchback size? Octavia. Who knows? I think Octavia. the Octavia is probably the newest. Um, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. The, the net on that platform. So actually, you know what they're all going to drive like uh, because they're all the same car underneath. So as these manufacturer groups get bigger and bigger and bigger, so uh, I think if we um, uh, delve into Stellantis, I think we'd probably we could go round the table. 30 times and say that oh yes an x is a y is a z because that that group's just got so big now hasn't it with fiat chrysler and peugeot and citroen and you know all the, all the others that are in it that one platform is going to be on what 15 20 different models so again that the underpinnings etc are probably less important because uh, it'll drive like the old one but again are we unusual in caring how cars drive you know is it comfortable is it quiet is the steering light or all the pedals light is important to most people i think one of the questions asked most frequently actually is is everyone in the motor industry or at least at a dealer level or wherever are they car enthusiasts and the truth of the matter is that a lot of them aren't but then a lot of people that drive cars aren't also i mean we are certainly there's a lot of people that love their cars and obviously we are we are they but there are a lot of people that really just want something to be able to put their iPhone into um, that is comfortable, gets warm quickly um, and has a decent app. Um, so 
it would be interesting to uh, to see a survey of, you know, just ask people in the street, what do you love more, your car or your phone? You know, would you, would you rather have the latest iPhone, Samsung, whatever it is, and a crummy old car, or would you rather have a Ferrari and a Nokia 3310? You know, I know what my answer would be. Um, yeah. I do wonder if that if that answer would be fairly consistent across the population. I think more people would probably vote for the smartphone these days. The more we move into electrified platforms, as you say, lots of manufacturers share platforms now, and that's going to be the case with Ford and, and Volkswagen and Volkswagen across their entire range of different manufacturers. There's a bit of badge engineering going on, even some manufacturers sharing cars. So the RAV4 is now the Vitara or whatever the Suzuki version of it is. It's just badge engineering. Literally the same car, near enough. A lot of the time, with R&D costs, I don't think there's a choice these days. You know, in, in no, the old so. days, you'd you'd have some boffin types smoking pipes and knocking things together in a shed, uh, and, it's, and it's cheap to develop a car, and they did what works, and, and you get on with it. Nowadays, again, all the interested parties and the regulation and the emissions and the CO2s and the crash testing and this, that, the other, it gets more and more and more and more expensive and more and more and more complicated to develop a car. So the number of units that you have to shift or the price you need to charge has to drastically change. You know, when you're talking about a nice spec Fiesta with all the trimmings on it, nudging £20,000, and a Focus Automatic with a few bits and pieces in a nice colour is £30,000. That's that's an insane Mm. amount of money for an average, a normal family hatchback or a small family hatchback. It's... It's crazy, but that's that's the price, and that's what's engineered into it, and all the uh, all the bits and pieces that go into making it a, a car that ticks all the boxes and complies with all the regulations. So that there is no choice these days other than to platform share, because you can't amortise the the development costs of a Focus just by selling a Focus. But if you could amortise it across selling a Focus and a Golf, then you quits it. Yeah. And electric platforms, they drive in a very similar fashion. You get that wave of torque, you get the power, everything else. But they are fundamentally quite similar in the way that they drive. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's. I think we're seeing now sort of cars almost becoming a commodity rather than a heart purchase. I mean, there will always be people like us who are car nerds, car nuts, who will be going for how does it sound, feel, look, make me feel when I throw it round a corner, noises it makes, etc., which is something that's you know going to go by the wayside once we're all driving electric cars that hum but electric cars are the future which interestingly leads me on we did have a message from one of our facebook adherents asking about we were talking about this a few weeks back um the massive great car plant that there is up in Sunderland, which makes Nissans, and uh, there was a lot of talk before Brexit, a lot of fear on their part, and obviously on the part of those who work for Nissan, that their jobs may not be there any longer if there was a no-deal Brexit. Now, as we know, fortunately, we have a deal, quite what it means. I don't think anybody's quite sure yet, but no. it does mean that <laughs> the market is still there for making cars in this country and exporting them back into the eu which you know has got to be a good thing given the sort of terrible propositions that were being thrown around by a lot of people now nissan have come out this week and are very bullish about the future and have committed to building lots of new cars up in sunderland which has got to be wonderful news for those who work there and for those who are obviously part and parcel of the supply chain i'm a little bit interested you know me i'm a bit of an old cynic 
Um, what do they know that the rest of the industry don't? Because I seem to... It's all all very positive, very bullish, but the rest of the rest of the industry are very conspicuous by their absence of jumping up and down and saying how wonderful it is that we can still do this. Does Nissan know something, I wonder, that the rest of the industry don't? I mean, where's um, Toyota? Where's Jaguar Land Rover? What, what are their views on this subject? I know electric cars are going to figure very prominently in in Nissan's um, future plans, which is, again, what they're talking about with relation to being able to sell cars into the EU still from from Britain. But I wonder if maybe they've been told something or been given a peek under the curtain by the government and given promises to make them stay. I mean, whatever it takes, fair enough. But you'd hope there would be a level playing field for the rest of the players in this country. And I just wondered if you, on the inside, were privy to any further information. DeLorean Motor Company, sorry. Um, no, I, <laughs> yeah, that was uppermost. I guess the key thing about Brexit, and in terms of what's built where and, and, and how that's done, is that we were really worried that components coming into the UK from Europe and going out of the, the UK into Europe um, were going to pick up quite heavy tariffs as a result of a no-deal Brexit. Thankfully, one of the few things that have come out of this is that actually that hasn't really been the case. Although we are still picking up tariffs from parts coming in from America, for example, which means some cars are more expensive by quite a margin. So we've seen an increase on a car that's about £28,000 of about £2,700. So there are certainly some extra costs there. Yeah, I think we've seen there's, it, it seems to be um, Ford's ST products have, uh, have had a sudden hike in price, haven't they? And that's, yes, yeah, I think it's all down to uh, rules of origin, the engine. as you say, and where, where the bits actually come from. So, yeah, d- depending on how far away the uh, the parts are sourced from, the uh, the rules are now different. But I think in in terms of uh, of the Brexit deal we got, you know, we were both massively worried about uh, what the outcome and what the deal or lack of deal was going to be, as it, it would have just crippled our industry a, uh, a no deal Brexit, but I think actually overall, you know, the the deal that was that was thrashed out from as much as I've looked into it seems probably about as good as we were going to get, and it's you know th- there's enough um, hardline Brexiteers that are moaning about the deal, and there's enough Ramonas that are moaning about the deal to tell you that actually it's probably about and fair and balanced as you're going to get because let's not forget wh- whichever way you voted. Near enough, fifty percent of the uh, of the voting public said I want out, and near enough, fifty percent of the public said I want to stay in. So, ultimately, any deal had to to pick up and cover both those sides. There was no other choice other than to come up with something that was fairly balanced to say, okay, we've left, but we've retained X, Y, and Z, and in return, we've given A, B, and C. But that's that's what a negotiation. That's what a deal is. Um, you know, it would have been silly to assume that we could have just walked away from the EU rules and regulations and not have to jump through any hoops yet continue to uh, to reap all the benefits. You know, if we ever turn around to our manufacturer and said, right, we're going to paint the showroom a different colour, rip out the tiles, we're also going to sell other cars, but by the way, we want top margins, top earnings, top uh, performance bandings uh, when you pay us money for selling cars, it simply wouldn't happen. So it's it's similar to that, isn't it? We've we've walked away from the franchise, but we've got quite a good deal to carry on selling new cars out of it. So it's, uh, no, it's, it's been okay, I think, but the uh, Nissan 
staying in this country is uh, is obviously motivated by money just as much as anything. So whether there's a, a future deal for Nissan from the government in terms of support, who knows? But it, if there is a bit of government support, then ultimately if it keeps that chunk of the country in employment, it's it's like the furlough scheme. You know, how, how does it make sense that the government pays everybody 80% of their wages to sit at home? It makes sense because it means the companies can carry on affording to employ them for when they do reopen again and they'll still be in business and they'll still have jobs so they can go out and spend money and support the economy you know it's it's just about keeping everything moving even if you have to keep pumping cash into it to keep it moving it's worth it you know it's, it's like pouring petrol into a car that's got a slightly leaky fuel tank as you're driving along well keep pouring it in because if it stops because you run out of fuel and you're at the bottom of a hill then you're in trouble you're never going to make it up it so keep chucking the petrol in Keep the car going, get to the top of the hill, and uh, and you'll be okay, because that's where you can get it fixed. There's a lot to be said for uh, what's going on at the moment in terms of motor industry in the UK. Certainly with Nissan, there's been a lot of shouting about it. The shouting's gone quiet and it's gone the other way, and now it's it, there's a lot of praise. So, yes, I can understand from a cynical point of view, has something happened there that's massively changed that? Again, Nissan have been very good in terms of developing electric cars, the Leaf is perhaps one of the most well-known electric cars, sort of standard electric cars. Feels a bit old-fashioned now, in fact, by comparison to some of the newer ones. But nevertheless, they were there at the beginning. They've got a lot to be able to develop. Now, in terms of how the industry progresses, I think we've established with electric car, you've got the car, that's one thing. You've got the battery, that's an expensive another thing. And you've also got the infrastructure. You need to be able to build the car and the battery. And that is expensive. But you also want to be able to do that relatively locally because that makes it cheaper. You can also export it and then obviously make some money out of it. In terms of the infrastructure, you need the charging infrastructure. But building the things in the first place and building the cars, it's an expensive game. Setting up a factory to build a car, a battery or whatever it is. It requires a hell of a lot of investment in the first place. So to shut it down and move it abroad, unless it's a lot cheaper to make it abroad and then get it back, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So Nissan really are are benefiting from staying here to an extent because of they're already established here, um, regardless of whatever else they're getting as part of this deal or not getting. We don't know, obviously. Uh, and we do know that in the past they were there were incentives for them to stay. Uh, let's put it that way. In terms of the rest of the industry, it's a tricky one, isn't it, really? I mean, certainly there are a lot of companies that have already moved themselves abroad, including a lot of uh, Brexiteers who who said they should stay in this country and we should buy British. I think they were just hedging their bets early. They decided which way they thought it was going to go and uh, and acted accordingly. And uh, I dare say the bigger the manufacturer, of course, the bigger an undertaking it is to move that. You know, again, if you're a... if you're aerial motor company and you want to move the factory, you find where you want unbolt to be it. and you <laughs> yeah, book a unbolt it, but it's to else. come and pack everything up and you ship it down the road and that's it. You know, if uh, if you're um, you know a single man living on your own and you want to leave the house or move house, you find another house, buy a house and move and and that's it. A company the size of um, the Volkswagen Group or Ford, you know, to to move or retool. A factory is is such a mammoth undertaking. There's probably what two years, two and a half years of planning just in that alone. Yeah. So they sat down, decided which way they thought it was going to go, and and 
went that way and that was it. So they called it wrong and I must admit even 20 minutes before the uh, the deal was announced it didn't look like the deal was going to be to that level, did it? It really didn't. Whether certain manufacturers, or I, I can only imagine, you would only expect that lots of big organisations, lots of big companies had some inside information from the government as to what the outcome was likely to be simply so they could plan, you know, that the government needs to interact with industry in that manner. So they have certainty, they have guarantees, they have guidance, so they can uh, they can plan and, and ensure they stay in business and keep people employed and keep the money churning around and keep the economy going. So, yeah, whether Nissan's information was better, different, earlier, they interpreted it differently, who knows? The other big thing about the motor industry and, and the constraints surrounding it are the piles of cash you deal with are pretty big. And this is true from a dealer level all the way through up to manufacturer level. But the amount of profit you deal with is past that that pile of cash is tiny. So whereas in most consumer goods, you'd be making a decent return in the motor industry, a good return is one to two percent, um, which is is tiny. It only works because the pile of cash is relatively big in the first place. So it's an expensive purchase. And when we have issues such as COVID and Brexit and being able to buy online as opposed to not being able to go into a showroom and everything else, that causes bigger problems. So, yes, investment is something that uh, that needs to happen at, at all different levels of the industry, um, but it's quite hard to do. And to make a massive change is usually expensive. And this goes for setting up a new dealership. You mentioned earlier on there are a couple of uh, a couple of larger dealerships in our local area, and they've spent somewhere in the order of eight and twelve million to build their glass boxes, which is a lot of money. And I think there's a bit of a misconception that there's a huge amount of money in being able to sell a car. And certainly, when you read something in the you know, in the paper talking about thousands of pounds off a car or whatever it might be you would instantly think well there must be thousands of pounds in a car but for most main manufacturers there's really not a lot in the actual what they call the chassis profit the car itself so it might only be you know 300 quid 500 quid a thousand pounds manufacturers then ultimately will generally reward the dealerships as they sell them if they sell enough of them buy a bonus back and so when dealers offer some money off a car they gamble that they will sell enough to be able to make a bonus back from the manufacturer i don't think that's a secret but it's certainly not something that people necessarily talk about very widely so yes it is a very small number in terms of the profit that you can make on each car as a car itself and so these monumental shifts don't happen very quickly so in terms of nissan and staying in the uk yes there's quite possibly some incentives for them to stay here but also some good reasons why you wouldn't pick up everything and leave. And that's largely because it's expensive. And if you can move goods around without massive tariffs, then you're probably onto a relatively good thing sticking with what you've got. Bit of jolly motorsport news is that well, Jensen Button's been a uh, busy boy. They say um, unemployment is uh, going to be an issue, but Jensen seems to have bagged himself well a, a multitude of jobs this week, doesn't he? So first of all, he's uh, he's going back to Williams uh, as a uh, special advisor, and I think he uh, he did intimate he might get to muck around in some of the heritage cars every now and again. So is that's definitely a perk. Oh yeah, quite right too. Uh, do you think? Well, I wonder what the company car tax on a Formula One car is. But he doesn't get to take it home, so it's okay. He probably hasn't got to pay him. Just full work, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, as well as that, he's uh, he's he's dabbled a bit in off-road racing over the uh, the last couple of years, as well as you know Super GT and uh, Le Mans and other things like that. But he's uh, he's signed up to the uh, the Extreme E 
championship. So uh, not only as a uh, as a, a team boss and and running a team, uh, as a driver as well. So it's um it's it's quite a, a big shift really, and it's it's quite a, an action packed name packed series now. As you've got Lewis Hamilton, obviously quite high profile, signed up to it. Although actually, I think he's unemployed as well, isn't he at the moment? Technically, but <laughs> and Nico Rosberg. So if uh, if you look at what Formula E has managed to do in terms of XF1 talent or F1 names, etc. You know, a, a few retired F1 drivers uh, have had a little dabble, but gone in and gone out and, and not had huge amounts of lasting success. Extreme E seems to have attracted more Formula One World Championships than uh, than any other series, I would say. Well, nine in between all three of them. And actually, of course, there's the I think the only two drivers to to ever beat Lewis over the course of a season or to a championship are signed up as well so I'm uh, excited to see how that's uh, that's going to go it um, I'm you know a big button fan as anyone who listens to the podcast will know but he uh, yeah he brings a uh, another angle to it and uh, I'm quite looking forward to that and the the videos of uh, of the car hooning around it it looks like a hilarious thing to drive I'd certainly like to have a go in one and I think if uh, if you're going to do an SUV style car that's how you should do it. If if you're going to do an off-road, high-riding, you know, four-by-four four kind of looking car, you know, if manufacturers built those as SUVs, then I'd uh, I'd have one of those. I'd be fully on board with those, I think. Mm, I think the other thing is if you put extreme in front of anything, it suddenly becomes more exciting, doesn't it? Like extreme frisbee. What what makes it extreme? You know, it does, yeah. it, I mean, there's a shark in the middle. Do you have to do it across a pool? It's, uh, it's not eaten? quite as extreme uh, as if they called it, you know, if if they didn't have the e at the beginning, if it was just x and then a dash, extreme, and then the rest of the word, you know that that's even more extreme. This this is only just this is mildly extreme, um, but extreme enough. Who knows? Maybe maybe next season it will be extreme with an x at the beginning, just to uh, to increase the extremeness by a factor of at least two. It does pick up a bit where rally's sort of leaving off though at the moment. I know part of it's a coverage problem, and I think this is sort of the case for BBC to an extent. And that was when I was a kid, you could sit there and you could watch a rally and you'd watch the whole thing going through. And it was really exciting. This year, obviously, we're stuck without victim of of the circumstances, perhaps. But to be able to fill in that gap, I think I think there's still a hunger for it. And I think actually putting big names in, in the cars, it's almost like a, a Legends tour, um, albeit relatively recent Legends as opposed to you know, for, from years gone by. I, I think it's definitely definitely worth a watch. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, and I think you you mentioned the coverage and bits and pieces. You know, where world rally coverage is quite tricky to find. You do have to go hunting for it. That's the, it is hidden away. I mean, it's ITV four, but a lot of the time you end up watching the highlights, and it's like eight o'clock at night or something. Hmm. I guess the thing is now, whereas you might have sat down on a Sunday morning watching it or watching it live, whatever you were, you were doing, because well, I don't know about you, when I watch stuff on TV now, it's very rare that I watch anything live at all. Uh, if it's something that's on a channel with adverts. I tend to record it, tape it, if you like. I guess if, if people can still do that, who knows? Can you still tape stuff? Anyway, um, and so you can fast forward through the adverts, or otherwise you just watch it on the various different players, don't you? But yes, it's definitely harder to find. I would think Extreme E and the, uh, the way the series organisers are going and who they've got involved with it, uh, I think they realise it has to be very well covered, very well promoted and very accessible. I think Formula One is um, attractive because of the the mystique and the aura that surrounds it a bit like 
I suppose, Premiership football. But the reason that so many people like football is because the lower leagues and uh, and the smaller games are you know cheap and, and you can get tens of thousands of people in. It's very accessible. You just go along and watch it. Formula E and uh, an extreme, he needs to to go down that route of being very accessible, very open to allow people to get uh, to get involved in it. And let's face it, it's it's electric motorsport, and they're all driving around in SUVs. I mean, just what what could be better? That's that's just <laughs> petrol heads' dream, isn't it? I would say it's very twenty twenty, but let's face it, everyone wants a uh, twenty twenty gone buried. So very twenty twenty one anyway. Um, <laughs> if you do want something to watch. In between listening to us, um, I would recommend having a, a quick look up whilst we're talking about catching things up at Richard Hammond's Big. The reason why I say this is because he went to VW and he had a look inside the VW factory and it is massive. The VW factory isn't so much a factory as its own city. It has its own roadways, buses, everything. If you want to see the scale of how big things are uh, in the motor industry in certain companies, certainly in the case of Volkswagen, worth a watch Richard Heaven's big it's available on Discovery UK or Discovery Player so yeah have a look and let us know what you think in the meantime you can catch up with us on Facebook and we are UK Motor Talk on Instagram where you'll be surprised to hear we're UK Motor Talk on Twitter where we are UK Motor Talk and at ukmotortalk.co.uk where we are UK Motor Talk or if like us you're pretty old fashioned you can send us an email because that's what people used to do in the old days kids and that is podcast at ukmotortalk.co.uk or write to us, which is what your grandparents did. And that is UK Motor Talk Towers, PO Box, whatever it is. In fact, we don't even know because let's face it, who sends letters anyway? But on that note, it's time to say goodnight. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've been Mike. I've been Jim. Have a good evening or rest of the day or whatever time of the day it is you're listening to us. And uh, stay safe, take care, and we'll see you soon. I've been Graham and it's goodbye from me and uh, have a good week. I've been David. It's been lovely chatting to you as always. Uh, take care, stay safe. Look forward to catching up with you next time. ta up. Yep, take care, stay safe, hands, face, space, and for the love of God, just stay inside and listen to a podcast or something. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.